is the Cloud Hub Podcast, your launchpad for Amazon Web Services. Welcome to the Cloud and Art Podcast. My name is Michael and usually I talk to my brother Andreas here in this podcast, but since he since he's on parental leave this year, I will be on my own today. We are on a mission in this podcast to explore Amazon Web Services. Listen to the Cloud and Art Podcast to deepen your knowledge, stay up to date, and also be inspired. This is episode number 43 and today is November 15, 2021. Before we dive into the topic, I want to thank Alan Leach, Alex Dupree, uh, Jim Hortley, Sean Toledano, Torsten Hoger, Todd, and Todd Valentine, and all anonymous supporters for their help. We also thank all the supporters who purchased the Cloud and Our t-shirt, and it really gives us great pleasure to send our t-shirts all over the world. So with your help, we can continue to produce independent and high-quality content focused on AWS. If you are interested in supporting us, please visit cloudonout.io slash support us to get all the details that you need. You will also find this link in the show notes. What's the subject today uh, for today's episode? I was uh, writing down um, basically my way, how I approach uh, creating an AWS architecture and I, I titled this AWS, the AWS Architect Mindset. So what I basically did is I captured everything that I usually do when I create architectures for our clients in a um, short document where I describe um, the areas that I think are of interest. So that's what we are going today. Uh, we are basically kind of exploring how I um, look at um, AWS architectures and what kind of areas I think are important. So the most important piece before we start is uh, that here it is really important to uh, care about the details because if you miss one detail, so for example, this could be the service that you want to use in your architecture is not available in the region that you have to use and then you are kind of in troubles because you created a very great architecture and it might look very um, cool on paper, but it's not going to work in um, practice because the service is not supported in the region. Or another detail that uh, often is uh, kind of missed is that the service might not be uh, in, like uh, if you are required to make the architecture compliant to a specific framework, it could be that the service that you choose in your architecture simply is not in scope of that compliance framework in AWS. So basically what I say here is that if you ignore the details, you can uh, run into all kinds of troubles, including extremely high costs and uh, also reduced availability of your architecture. So to make sure that you don't miss any of the details, we are explore a couple of areas that are important here. So first, and that is maybe obvious, but still very important because you cannot change it easily. Um, not all services are available in all regions. So that means that especially if you use newer services, um, as well as if you use smaller regions, which usually are also newer regions, um, they tend to have low coverage. So if you are in a region like US East 1 or EOS 1, you usually have all the new services available. But if you use something like um, the region in France, for example, then it is very likely that a couple of services will not be available there, especially the ones that are just released. 
AWS publishes a list of all the supported services per region. Um, I think this list is kind of not very useful um, because uh, it, it doesn't really show the, me the information in the way that I want. I would like to have a big table. Um, luckily, there's a community project that solves that. So you just get all the information that you want. Uh, find the link in uh, the show notes. There is still a chance that a single feature is not available in your region. So that is really crazy uh, because there is actually no uh, table from AWS that kind of covers that level of detail. Um, so if you really rely on a very specific feature, then you should definitely check out the docs uh, or even better t- test it out in the region that you want to use if the feature is available there. So those could, could be things like, uh, for example, uh, global databases, Aurora global databases, uh, or things like that. So very specific features or um, what else comes to my mind. Um, maybe if you're using one of the new uh, EBS uh, block, uh, um, the new block devices um, that are available, they might not be available in each region. Even instance types might not be available in each region. So those are kind of uh, uh, examples that I just um, remembered here while I was talking. So that's it. That's the first big kind of thing you should check. Is everything available in the region that I have to use? Um, And again, here the problem is that if the service is not available in the region or the instance type is not available region, there's basically nothing that you can do to change that. So uh, AWS has its own uh, kind of roadmap. Uh, They usually don't disclose any dates until they release something. So it's just Either you wait for infinite uh, amount of time or you kind of re-architect. Um, so then better watch out for problems like that. All right. The next thing is that um, we, you have to understand the availability of the services that you use. Because some of the AWS services are distributed worldwide. And there are a couple of examples like Route 53, DynamoDB Global Tables, things like that. While other services, and this is the, I think, majority of services, are regional. Um, within a region, they are distributed across availability zones. Um, so those are things like S3 buckets, SQS queues, SNS topics, and so on. And the last category of services is zonal. So a zonal service runs in a single availability zone only. And the most common examples here, the most popular ones, are things like EC2 instances, RDS instances, EBS volumes. So if you use services like that or blocks like that, uh, understand that they only run in a single zone so that your architecture very likely has to deal with the consequences if you are striving for a regional service. So if your application should be replicated in a region and you use services that are not by default replicated in a region, then your architecture has to provide that um, capability. So... Yeah, T, um, and, and the question is, how can you achieve that? Um, so if you run EC2 instances, for example, the, 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 the building block that you need to make them regional is a auto-scaling group. And because an auto-scaling group spreads EC2 instances across availability zones, and then you are fine again. But that's something that you have to keep in mind. And the same is true if you want to run a global architecture, like a, a multi-region architecture. If that's your goal, you very likely have to do lots of work Uh, to make sure that this is working because only a very few services in AWS uh, are cross-region. So what's the next point here or the next area of interest? And this is, um, I think, one of the most important ones, uh, at least 
uh, for the projects that, that I worked with um, uh, is cost. So people want to know upfront what are the implications on their bill if they choose this architecture or that architecture. Um, and in almost all cases, and that's kind of the benefit of AWS uh, and also cloud in general, is that um, you pay for what you use. So it's your job or our job as AWS architects to create cost-efficient architectures. And to do that, you have to familiarize yourself with the cost model of each and every service that your architecture uses. Because you cannot assume that one service is priced in the same way than an, a different service. Uh, that two diff basically, you cannot assume that two services are priced in the same way. They all have their own pricing model and they all use different pricing dimensions. So let me give you a couple of example, uh, examples. For example, an EC2 instance is priced uh, based on the time it runs, basically, and also like the hardware characteristic it has, but it doesn't change over time. So the, the, the most important part in your build will be the like hours or seconds instances are running. So that's driving your EC2 costs. It doesn't matter if you use your EC2 instance or not. So once it is running, you pay for it, no matter if it's 0% utilized or 100% utilized. Um, but there are other services. You don't have this baseline cost when things are running. You only pay for when really things are used. So the, the classic example compared to EC2 would be either a Fargate container that spins up and spins down, or even better, a Lambda function, where you only pay for the time the function runs, and once it is done with its compute, it will shut down, and you will not pay anything for the Lambda function anymore. So that's something you have to understand. There's also a very important piece to understand, and this is something that I miss in like quite a lot of AWS cost calculations, for architectures, and this is also like this is one of the first questions I ask if if I get um, like if I do for example a review of an architecture or if I have a workshop with with a team, I ask them uh, to show me their cost calculation. And basically, question number one is, and, and what what about traffic? So I don't see any traffic estimates on your on your on your slides here. So what's what's wrong here? Because you can assume that whenever you move traffic around an AWS, by default. Um, I think you can assume that you have to pay for it. The only exception is that if you really find some, something written down where AWS tells you that, okay, in this case, you don't pay for traffic. And if you find this information, then you are fine, then it's really free. If you don't find something like that, just assume you have to pay for it. And then you have to figure out um, the, the price that uh, you have to pay. So let me give you one example. Um, and this is kind of, uh, I think, kind of crazy. So let's assume... You have an, um, if you have an EC2 instance, and if that instance talks to another EC2 instance in a different region, you pay $2 for the traffic that uh, goes to that other instance. If you have two instances running in the same region but different zones, you pay $1 per gigabyte that moves between those instances. So that's cross a set, a set traffic. That is very often, uh, oftentimes missed. And then there's also this interesting uh, piece that if you use a NAT gateway, uh, you also pay for the NAT gateway, but you also pay for the internet gateway. So if you have traffic that leaves uh, the, the, the VPC and goes out into the internet, uh, you pay for that on the internet gateway. And if you use a NAT gateway, you also pay for this additionally on the NAT gateway. So it's not that you only pay the NAT gateway. No, you pay the NAT gateway plus the internet gateway fee. 
so that's that's very interesting because then your bill uh, will will change significantly if you miss that 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 second part where you just uh, kind of miss the internet gateway um your your bill will be just one third of 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 what it actually is and this is then surprising if you have an application or an architecture that moves a lot of data out of uh, into the internet so Getting the cost model uh, right is important because you can be very, very surprised. Uh, for example, my classic example is don't don't forget the traffic. And uh, this is in some architectures really the cost driver. One example I have, um, we we architected a kind of a webhook system. So there was like already a big um, like kind of system of, of microservices. And now they wanted to add the capability that their customers can add a webhook to receive events and kind of push them into their own systems. So how is the webhook implemented? Usually one of the, like our service uh, makes an HTTP post request to the customer's endpoint. So we are moving lots of data out into the internet because we are sending the payload into the internet. Basically the event payload is, is, is transferred from us, from our VPC into the internet, uh, which is the customer's endpoint. And it turns out that no matter what architecture you create, if it's EC2 based or Fargate based, in almost all cases, I mean, it depends a little bit on the event size, but for the event size that we were estimating, um, the cost drive of the architecture was traffic. So it was not EC2, it was not Fargate or anything else, it was really the outbound traffic um, was driving the cost of the architecture, which was very surprising, uh, at least for me. Uh, at least we didn't forget about traffic because this would have... Um, kind of be um, more or less a catastrophe if we would have forgotten um, traffic in such an architecture that is traffic uh, kind of bound from a pricing perspective. All right, so next point. Um, now it gets a little bit, um, I think, niche maybe, uh, depending on where you work. Um, in some companies, you have to be compliant with some framework. So this could be that you have to be SOC compliant. This could be uh, maybe you have to be ESO um, something compliant, uh, things like that. And basically, if you uh, want to, or if you are lazy, what you do is you just provide your auditor that the services that you use are compliant already. And this kind of frees you from um, proving the auditor that whatever you do is compliant with that framework because you can then tell, okay, our supplier AWS does it for us. So that's great. Um, the problem here is that... Um, Sometimes you read uh, in like probably in the marketing slides from AWS that AWS is, for example, SOC compliant or AWS is this and that compliant. And the thing here is that that's not really true. Only the services and regions in scope are compliant. So one example uh, that I found is that ElastiCache for Memcached is not in scope um, as well as, for example, the China regions. Uh, so you have to be very careful when you say that your architecture is compliant to this and that framework because AWS is compliant to this and that framework because you really have to double check that really the services that you use in the region that you use are compliant or are in scope um, by the compliance framework on AWS. So a couple of numbers. Um, so again, I use the SOC compliance framework. Um, it, it covers 133 services and there are at the moment over 200 services. Uh, on AWS, and it covers 23 regions out of 25 regions that are available at this time. So this leads to the question of what is uh, in scope or what is not in scope. And the rule of thumb here is kind of similar than for regions. New services and new regions usually aren't in scope. 
And again, there's a list from AWS um, where you can kind of find the details. Um, and if you and this includes the services. So if you want to see if your service is in scope, um, then you can check out this list. But now it gets a little bit more tricky. If you want to see if your service is in scope in that specific region, then you have to look through um, detailed PDF reports from AWS for the compliance framework. Um, sometimes this also includes a list of edge locations that are in scope. So if you, for example, use something, you use something like CloudFront or Route 53 and you say, okay, Route 53 is SOC compliant. And that, that's what, very likely not 100% true because there will be edge locations that are not yet in scope. And, and if your traffic kind of moves through that edge locations, then, it, I mean, you are not really covered. Um, so you have to be a little bit careful uh, with what you kind of present your auditor in this case. Um, but keep that in mind. Uh, it gets really tricky when you have to look at the edge locations because you cannot really control which edge locations you use. So um, this is just, I think, kind of something to keep in mind. Um, but probably no one knows that. Um, so it's not a big problem. Um, okay, next point, um, quotas. Um, before AWS was, was uh, using the, the name limits, um, but nowadays they use the term quotas. A quota is basically kind of a, um, a limit. I mean, it's a number um, that protects you from excessive usage. So for example, by default, you cannot launch 100 EC2 instances. Uh, you can um, only launch a lower number of instances. This kind of helps or protects your build um, if you do something kind of by mistake. You can also not create an infinite amount of VPCs by default, so there is a limit. Um, so I think it's 20 or something like that. So if you want to have more VPCs, then you can increase the quota. And this is kind of the tricky part because some quotas, or I can also say most quotas, can be increased, but there are quotas that cannot be increased. So if you, for example, want to create an architecture where each customer gets its own VPC, then you can say, okay, that, that's kind of okay because the VPC limit can be increased, the quota can be increased for VPCs, but you really have to understand, okay, what's the upper limit here? And when we talk about upper limits, in most cases on AWS, it's not really clear what's the upper limit. Um, you can then reach out to AWS support and they may tell you some number if you're lucky. Uh, but if you have like a, a large AWS build, then the number might be a little bit higher. So it, it is oftentimes what I experience is kind of different for different clients. And um, so there are also hard upper limits that cannot be changed. So in this case, that's that's something that, that you uh, usually find in the documentation. But all the other limits is a little or quotas, it's a little bit hard to understand. Okay, what, what really is the upper limit here? So... Can I create a VPC per customer? Can I create an SQSQ per customer? Is that going to work or not? Figuring that out is uh, tricky sometimes depending on the numbers that you expect. So we talked about quotas and I already kind of introduced that they were called limits before and now it gets a little bit um, tricky. So we are now talking about limitations. So those are not limits and not quotas. It's something different. Um, usually all AWS services have limitations and I give you a couple of examples. Uh, one of my favorite limitations that I discovered a couple of months ago is that the network throughput of an EC2 instance is um, kind of, um, I would say, limited in interesting or interesting ways. So if your instance has guaranteed 10 gigabits connectivity, then you only get 5 gigabits to and from the internet guaranteed. 
And that's interesting and surprising, I think, because, I mean, I have 10 gigabits in a machine. Why don't I get 10 gigabits into the internet and back? So that that's surprising, I think. So if you create something like um, the, what I said, like a webhook system uh, that is really traffic bound, it kind of matters if you can only send out half of the data that you expect, because this is kind of uh, double the number of EC2 instances you need. Uh, and that could have an effect on your bill. So another limitation that I really like, uh, because it kind of drives people crazy when they try to debug the problem, is that uh, if you... Um, you might like have an, a server running on-premises and you move it over to AWS. And that server sends out emails over SMTP port 25. And it works It works great in your data center. It sends like internal, like to your administrator inbox and stuff like that. So not really external emails, but like internal emails. It works great in your, in your data center and it doesn't work on AWS. Uh, so why? Uh, your security group says it, it's open or 25 outbound is open. But still, it's not working. Um, your thing is that um, EC2 blocks outbound traffic on port 25 by default. And it, it's not visible in the security group. It's just a default. Um, and you can kind of um, create a request that kind of removes that, um, that uh, filter. But yeah, if you don't know this, you will have a hard time to debug this. And, and if you discover that in production, it's also not the best time. What I do for every AWS services that I use in my architecture, I make sure that I read the FAQs um, and the docs carefully. Um, one problem that I kind of run into uh, since a couple of, I think, years now is that AWS makes it harder and harder and harder to find the limitations in the docs. So there was a time where there was just a limitation section in every documentation and you were just, okay, I want to understand how this thing works you were going over the overview and then I was looking in the limitations and then you had kind of some, somehow of understanding how the service works. And that's not how it works today anymore. Um, now we have quotas um, and um, limitations are not really documented anymore sometimes. So um, that that's, I don't, I don't like it. So um, it still helps to read the FAQs. Sometimes you will find some information in the FAQs. Um, um, and so, for example, a couple of examples that I can share with you is SNS has uh, throughput limits. Uh, of course, it has. Um, and they are different depending on the region. So in US East 1, they are significantly higher than, for example, in uh, the Frankfurt region. Um, but this is something you have to understand um, if you architect uh, an application, um, because the same service behaves very differently in different regions. And this is uh, documented in this case, but um, not um, like in a very uh, innovative, it's easy to find basically. Okay, next point. Um, this is about um, service level agreements, or you can also say um, it's about um, the service level objective. doesn't really matter here. Um, so if you, for example, take EC2 instances as an example, then you might read somewhere that they have an SLA of 99.99%. So if you look closer, um, that's not really true um, because that, that, that number doesn't apply to a single instance. The SLO that AWS defines um, is uh, that, 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 that is 99.99% assumes that EC2 instances are deployed concurrently across two or more um, zones in the same region. So this is basically the auto-scanning thing that I uh, talked about earlier when we were looking at the availability um, characteristics. So for a single instance, the SLO is just 
I mean, just 99.5%. The next question is, okay, what actually happens if AWS misses that, that SLO? And then this is where the SLA gets interesting. And, and for example, if AWS misses uh, in this EC2 service an SLO, you earn credits worth 10% of your EC2 cost in that month. That's it. Um, and if AWS misses the SLO very badly, then you can get up to 100% back in credits. You, you just get uh, the money back in credits. You, you don't get the money back. Uh, you just get credits, basically. Uh, and other services provide very different or no SLAs at all. So keep that in mind. Uh, so really understand, again, the details uh, helps you uh, in your architecture. And this sometimes could could decide or help you decide between two different services. So you look at one service, it has an SLA. You look at another different service, it doesn't have an SLA. And then your organization might say, okay, then we, we better go with the one that, that has an SLA uh, because that feels, feels safer to us. So uh, keep that uh, uh, on your kind of checklist as well. So the last thing I want to talk about uh, that I usually check when I create an architecture is what are the IAM capabilities of the services here? Um, because all AWS services use the Identity and Access Management Service, IEM, to control um, access by, um, with policies. And your architecture might rely on IEM to achieve, for example, something like tenant isolation. So you are running your application like maybe one VPC per customer or something like this, or you run everything on the same machine, but you have in your S3 bucket different folders for different tenants, for example. Then you somehow rely on the IEM um, system to kind of make sure that one tenant cannot access the data from a different tenant. Um, unfortunately, uh, not all AWS services support the same set of features when we talk about IEM. So for example, some services and most services probably allow you to limit access to a specific resource. So only you can access this EC2 instance, for example. Only you can stop the EC2 instance. Others uh, also allow you to restrict access based on text in policies. So you can implement something like you can access all the AWS resources as long as they are tagged with tenant ID 123, something like this. But there are also services that don't support any of those um, limits uh, or kind of resource level or condition-based policies. So you can just say, okay, you're allowed to perform this action, but it applies to all the resources um, that it covers. So don't take any of the IAM functionality when we talk about resource level permissions and conditions for granted. Um, you definitely have to double check the IAM docs. And the good news here is that we have good IAM docs these days. And you will find the link in the show notes. It's really, um, I would say, covers every action. It tells you if there is a resource level um, constraint. If yes, it shows you the Amazon resource names that can be used. It also shall um, kind of lists all the conditions that you can use. So that's very helpful. I, I really use that doc uh, a lot. So that's it. Uh, that was a lot. Uh, I hope you learned something um, new. So when you select the best services for your architecture, you really need a broad understanding of the services that you use in your architecture. Um, and I think the problem is that you, you don't need only very detailed knowledge. You need kind of both. First, you have to kind of gather a wide knowledge of like as many AWS services as possible because you need to know, okay, what's possible? What services are available? What, what, what could I potentially use here in my use case? But then on the other hand, once you select a service and before you put it into your architecture, you have to go really into the details 
then you have to understand everything about um, maybe compliance, IAM capabilities, um, the limitations, the quotas. So this is also something that you have to know at the point where you really want to use this service in your architecture. Um, yeah, I think or I hope I made it clear that the details really matter. Um, and I hope that this kind of helps you to avoid uh, pitfalls when architecting on AWS. And I must admit, I mean, I was running into all kinds of very awkward situations with AWS architectures because sometimes limitations and kind of missing capabilities in specific regions are really just unexpected. And that's the problem. I mean, if you don't expect them, then you cannot plan for them. And then you will have a very bad day when you present your architecture. Or even worse, when you implement the architecture or when someone implements your architecture. So keep that in mind. Um, I hope um, that that was useful. And um, so before we kind of close here, um, I want to ask you um, a favor. If you like the Cloud or Not podcast, please tell your friends and or co-workers about it. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. So that just helps us um, to kind of uh, let people find the podcast because very often they are just ordered or sorted by this kind of information. If you want to provide us other feedback, uh, you can find our contact details in the show notes. Send me an email, something like this. So thank you very much for listening. Um, I hope I will be back once more this year. Um, and then after that, last episode in December. Uh, Andreas will be back in the show and we can continue to have a conversation about AWS and not just me uh, telling you something about um, AWS. So thanks for a lot. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, uh, see you next month. Bye.